I've had a bit of a klutzy week. You're going to hear about that. Um, it really, it started off not so well on, let's say, Monday night. So I've been having a hard time sleeping, mainly because of my back. I'm sure there's other reasons as well. So I've been getting up in the middle of the night. But if I get up, it takes me, after I've been asleep, it takes me somewhere around about, I don't know, two or three minutes just to kind of like move my legs and then tilt up barely and make sure that I don't re-injure my back. And I'm trying to do this because I have to like get blood flow to my back in the middle of the night so I can kind of keep sleeping. And then I'm worried about like bothering Pam. So what I do, I get up in the middle of the night and I think, all right, I'll just go sleep in the other room. And that's what I did. I went and I slept in the other room. Now here's what you need to know about me. I have not been able to sleep past, I don't know, 7.15 since I, 20 years ago. And I always just kind of get up. I can't, I mean, those of you who sleep in late, I completely um, am jealous because I cannot do it. No matter how hard I try, I can't sleep in. Except on Tuesday morning, when I did not think in the middle of the night as I'm roaming around the house, oh, I'll just sleep in the guest bedroom. I did not think I should probably take my phone in and set an alarm. I also didn't think I should probably do that because I have an 8 a.m. class to teach of seminary students on Zoom. It's my last class. And so I uh, hear some things going on in the house. There's kind of hustle and bustle. People are obviously awake. And I'm thinking, oh, no, my class. But of course, at that moment, I can't get up. I'm like sitting there in bed. I can't get up. And I'm thinking, oh, no, how am I going to get to my class? And the guest bedroom does not even have a clock in it. So I don't really know what time it is. So I'm trying to like crawl to my computer to open my computer to see what time it is. And I look on the clock and it is 8.02. <laughs> and I'm supposed to be teaching a Zoom class. You know, I'm, I'm like the professional seminary professor. And I'm like, oh, no. So. I was a hot mess. I ran into, I didn't run, I hobbled into my uh, bedroom. I threw on a button-down shirt. I put on a hat and I think like, okay, I'm going to be all right. I'm just going to, you know, fake it till you make it. So I get there. I turn on Zoom. I log on. The students are sitting there. There's like, you know, I don't know, 15 of them there. And then I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll apologize and maybe I can pull this off. And then I'm looking, you know, because you see yourself in Zoom. And I'm looking at the I'm looking at the camera and I've managed to button my shirt somehow like where my collar is back here because I've got the buttons all mixed up. And then at one point I look down and I think, oh, no, I am wearing my pajama shorts inside out. Like literally the pockets of my pajama shorts are flapping out and I'm like sitting there, Mr. Professional, teaching my last seminary course on Philippians. And I was completely overwhelmed and an utter mess. You ever have days like that? Moments like that? Interactions like that? The passage that was read earlier, we find that Judah... Habakkuk, the prophet's hometown, is an utter mess. And he is completely overwhelmed. See, Judah has had some good years, but 
At this point in history, she has been through a brutal civil war with her uh, brothers and sisters to the north. She has had a, uh, a handful of good kings, but mostly bad ones. This has taken its toll so that he looks around and what he sees is violence, injustice. He sees corruption everywhere. And to make matters worse, this wicked, vicious nation, the Chaldeans, we know them as the Babylonians, they're roaming around kind of getting closer and closer. And he's like, what is going on? He's overwhelmed. And what does he do? What do you do? He cries out to God in a prayer that we have before us. So why don't we take our cue from Habakkuk and cry out to God now as we look at his word together. God, as we look at this prayer and your response, we ask that you would answer us as you answered Habakkuk by showing us how great you are by reminding us that our thoughts are not your thoughts and our ways are not your ways. By causing us to be amazed and astounded. May we be amazed and astounded this evening, once again. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I want to look at Habakkuk's cry because I think Habakkuk's cry can help us know how to cry. Uh, the reason uh, the reason I say that is because the first thing I want you to see about this cry is that it is relevant. Uh, Habakkuk opens in verse two with two questions uh, in these in verses two through four. He, he asks how long, verse two, and he asks why, verse three. And man, aren't those our questions? I mean, the more and more I talk to people, the more and more these are the questions they're asking. They're asking, how long? How long till we get to meet in our sanctuary again? How long till our kids get to go back to school? How long till I can take a trip to Europe? How long? How, how, how long till community groups can meet again in person? I got that one this week. How long? How long? How long? We want to know how long, and we also want to know why. Don't we? And the reason that we, I mean, the reason that's very clear is because, I don't know if you noticed, conspiracy theories of all types are on the rise. But why? Because we want to know why. We want some explanation for what is going on. So we can relate to Habakkuk's question, how long and why? And we can also relate to his situation. Look at verse 3. He, he, he speaks of iniquity, destruction, violence, strife, and contention. Man, are those not our news headlines? <laughs> destruction of fires. Destruction of a virus. And all the carnage that is being left in these things wake. <laughs> violence, Habakkuk cries. We know violence. Whether it's the violence of police brutality or the violence of protests, we know violence. It's all around. And we know strife and contention, do we not? I mean, it's, it's getting to be the point where you, you wonder, can civil discourse ever happen again with those with whom we disagree? We wonder, is it possible for our representatives to to come together and listen and compromise and get something done. 
And it's not just our representatives, let's be honest. It's happening in our workplaces. It's happening all over. Destruction, violence, strife, contention, Habakkuk's cry is relevant. Second thing I want you to see, though, is Habakkuk's cry is also real. Habakkuk's is not really a Sunday school prayer, is it? He's not just lifting up pious words. This isn't the, like, astute theological professor trying to sound all holy and use a bunch of big words. No. Look at what he says. He prays out of his experience. Verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity? Destruction and violence are before me. Habakkuk prays about what he sees and about what's before him. See, this isn't Habakkuk's measured response to God saying, God, well, I've sat there and I have looked at the situation from every angle. And after looking at the situation from every angle and weighing all the ways in which this could be the case, I have decided to bring this to you because this is how things are. I'm going to give you an objective analysis on the situation. No, he's just praying his heart. He's praying what he feels. Man, uh, things, uh, there's a lot of brain fog out there lately. I don't know if you've experienced this. I've experienced a lot of brain fog. I mean, when, you know, normal things like going to the grocery store or starting the school day off used to be automatic, and now uh, we have to put so much more thought and effort into them, it just seems like it's hard to think straight. And we get kind of discombobulated, I do. I mean, on Wednesday, on Wednesday, get this, I lost... My keys once, my headphones twice. There was something else. I can't even remember that now. And after I packed up to like, I, I packed everything in the car because at the end of the day, I was like, I'm just, I'm just going to go to the ocean. And the straps for my surfboard, I realized, are like across town in somebody else's car. I mean, I just feel like I'm living in this brain fog. And it's a bit overwhelming. And... In the midst of this, I don't know about you, but I sit down to pray and I just get kind of flooded. And I don't know what to say. Or where do I start? Do you feel that way? Like, where do we even start? Have you ever felt that way? Well, Habakkuk tells us where to start. You start with your experience. Start with what you see. Start with what is before you. Pray what is real. Pray what you feel. Nicholas Wolterstorff was a professor of philosophy. He taught at Yale. Um, he's written a lot of, uh, a lot of really important books um, that are of a philosophical nature. But I think actually that the, most, the book that people probably cherish most is his book called Lament for a Son. It's a book that he wrote after his 26-year-old son died of a hiking accident. And really, it's his prayer journal. In the midst of Lament for the son, for a son, Walter Storff writes, I skimmed some books on grief. They offered me ways of not looking death and pain in the face. They offered me ways of turning away from death out there to one's own inner grief process. Then he says this, I will not have it said. I will not look away. I will remind myself that there is more to life than pain, yes, but I will not look away from my son's death. It is demonic awfulness. I will not ignore it. I owe that to him. 
and to God. What's Wolfson saying? Saying death, violence, injustice, these things are real. And it doesn't do any good to turn away or to look away from them. He says, no, this is the raw experience of the world. There's a other place in the book where he says, he says, you know, laments, every lament is really a love song. Something that you love has been lost. And then he cries out, oh God, will there really be a day when love songs are no longer laments? It's raw. I think what Habakkuk is saying is bring your real, raw experience before God. See, if, if you know how to cry, then you know how to pray. If you know how to complain, and we know how to complain, then you know how to pray. Habakkuk cries out, he complains to God. This is a real cry. Habakkuk's cry is relevant, Habakkuk's cry is real. But Habakkuk's cry is also radical. It's radical first and foremost because he is honest with God. I mean, when Habakkuk is praying here in verses uh, 2 through 4, he's not simply talking to God about his experience of the world. He's actually crying out against God because of his experience in the world. Listen, he says in verses 2 and 3, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Five times in these verses, Habakkuk lays the blame at God's feet. He says, God, this is on you. Because, because the way I see it is either, either you're all-powerful, the all-powerful sovereign God, and you can do something about this, or if you don't do something about this because you're all-powerful, then you don't care. So you're not loving. Or you care and you're loving, but you're not all good, and, uh, but you're not all-powerful because you can't do anything about it. So which is it, God? He wants to know. I mean, this is radical how, how Habakkuk goes to God because, because just think about how countercultural this is. We, we don't do this. Today, we have more. There's like a religious way of approaching God, and that is you don't complain to God. You don't argue with God. It, you, you kind of come to God and you brush over all the things that, that rub in life, the things that you don't understand, and you never come to God. Or if you do have questions... If you do have friction, if you are struggling and you do have doubts, what do you do? Well, you don't talk to God about them. You talk to somebody else. It's the irreligious way. But, but Habakkuk holds these two things together. He has a beef, and he brings it to God. He has his doubts, and he brings them to God. See, this is radical how... How honest Habakkuk has able to be with God. Did you know that you can be that honest with God? Did you know that you can come to God? That you can say, God, I don't understand, and this doesn't make sense, and here's why. 
Do you know he's big enough to take it? Habakkuk is inviting us to come and to be honest with God. This is radical, though, not just because Habakkuk is honest with God, as radical as that is. This is also radical because Habakkuk is honest about God's people. You know, when Habakkuk looks around and he says, do you know what Habakkuk's problem is, ultimately? He would say, ultimately, the problem is with God. But why is he crying out with God, to God? He's crying out to God because not, Jew, not those nations, not those outsiders, because Judah is sinful. Because the violence and the oppression and the injustice and the corruption that he sees all around him, that, that this, he's saying, this is actually... This is actually happening in God's own people. And he's saying, God, I'm crying out to you. Why don't you do anything about this? Why are you letting your people remain so sinful? Now, in a world where we demonize the other and treat those who are not in our community with the, the least amount of charity as possible, and yet we'll vindicate our own and vindicate ourselves. Habakkuk's cry is radical. Because he's willing to say, the problem is not just out there. The problem is, is in here. The problem's in here. The problem's with the people of God. The problem's with my own heart. I mean, this is a, this is a hard word. Maybe this is a time for the church to step back and to stop pointing the finger out there and to start taking a long, hard look in here. Maybe God has given us this time so that we can do that. As I talk to my pastors or friends all across the country, as I talk to my students who are online and spread out across the country and they tell me about what's going on in their in their churches. I mean, it's astounding and it's sad. I, I mean, I, I got these reflection papers from students and I, one after another I start reading and they're talking about how everyone in their church is about to eat everyone else's head off and how so there's so much division and contention and strife in their churches. And they're, you know, they're protests at churches in our presbytery where, where folks are like, not willing to go into the sanctuary because of mask wearing, and they've like separated themselves out. There's there's protests about service times and and, and and about and about when we do this and how we do this and whether it's live stream or pre-recorded or and the the hostility, the strife, and and it's it's in my heart too. And I look at that, and I listen to my students, and I, and I talk to my friends, and it's, it's everywhere. And I think, Lord, how and why? I mean, we are those who have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We, we are those, every person that you look at in the church around you and in other churches, they are those who are God's blood-bought lambs. And he has, he has he's died and risen again for us so that we can maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond 
of peace so that we can contend side by side for the truth of the gospel, to live harmonious, interdependent lives as citizens of the heavenly kingdom. And he calls us to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility to count others as more significant than ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others. In other words, he calls us to have the mindset, the disposition of Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the very form of God, was very God of very God, did not consider his divine status something to be exploited for his own advantage. But he humbled himself, becoming a slave and being found in the likeness of man, men to become obedient as a man to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then we are called to work out this mindset as a working out of our salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Paul writes. This is the salvation that we work out. This is what it means that we express the mindset of Christ in his disposition. That we do nothing out of arguing or complaining. This is what we're called to. And, and yet, I read this and I see my heart and I see the churches and I listen and I just think, Lord, do we know you? Do we know you? How much of you do we have? And how long? How long will the church that resides in America be like this? How long will we not be ready for persecution? Not ready to witness? How long, O oh Lord, and why? Habakkuk's cry is relevant, it is real, it is radical. But Habakkuk's cry is also risky. It's risky for at least two reasons. First, it's risky because when you cry out to God like Habakkuk did, you may not get an immediate answer. Look at verse 2. Habakkuk says, How long, O Lord, shall I cry for help and you will not hear me? How long shall I cry for help? Which assumes what? This isn't the first time he's cried out. That Habakkuk has been doing this over and over and over again, and it feels like there's no one on the other end of the line. One of the deterrents, I think, the thing that deters me from crying out to God is sometimes I just feel like there's no one on the other end of the line, and the ceiling feels solid and low. Do you ever feel like that? If you ever feel like that, I want you to know that the Bible is not surprised God is not surprised by that feeling. And he gives us these prayers that say, How long, O Lord, so that we might know that this is actually sometimes a very common experience, and sometimes, in some places in life, a very common experience of the people of God. And so we cry out, How long? But here's a question for you. Yes, it's risky because you could cry out and God may not answer. But what if he does answer? What if God does answer your prayer? Are you ready for it? Are you prepared for the answer that he might give? Because you see, Habakkuk cries out, and God, he doesn't give him the answer that he wants or is expecting. 
And it may be that way for you as well. And for me as well. And that's actually what a relationship is all about. You see, if you want a relationship with another person, it means that they have to be another person. And they get to disagree and have opinions that are different than yours. And if you want a relationship with God, then you have to be prepared that he can answer you in ways that you don't like or you don't expect. And so God answers Habakkuk. Verse 5, he says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astonished, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And yet he does tell him. In verses 5 through 11, God tells Habakkuk exactly what he's going to do. Let me summarize it for you. He says, Habakkuk, are you ready for this? You know, you know that nation that's out there, that, that brutal, fierce, unjust nation that takes no prisoners? You know them, the Babylonians? Guess what? I'm raising them up. And I'm sending them straight to Judah. And I'm going to smash Judah with that nation, that vicious, fearsome, brutal nation that is fast and furious. That's my answer. Are you ready for it? Wonder and be amazed. I don't think that's the answer Habakkuk wanted. When Habakkuk said, God, your people, your people are uh, sinful. There's injustice everywhere. There's violence everywhere. Would you sanctify your people? Would you make them holy again? There's corruption so that even though Josiah brought back the law, it still doesn't do any good because there's just corruption from the top down all the way. The wicked outnumber the righteous. God, would you do something about it? Do you think he said, yes, I will. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise up this wicked, evil, awful nation to discipline my people, to turn their hearts back to me. That's what I'm going to do. We've been praying, and it's been encouraging to hear your prayers on Sunday mornings, prayers throughout the time when we were sheltered at home. And one of the things that I think we've been praying for that's good is we've been praying in the midst of this for revival. We want God to bring revival. But we've also been praying that God would put an end to COVID-19. I think those are good prayers. But here's my question for you. What if you can't do both? What if he's not willing to do both? We, we, we pray that God would bring revival, but we also pray that he would put in the leaders in place that we want him to put in place. But what if we can't have it both ways? We, we pray for... We pray for... For revival. We pray that God would protect us from persecution. But what if we can't have it both ways? What if God's way of bringing revival is through pandemics, unjust leaders, persecution? Are you saying that it is, Kyle? No, I'm not saying that it is. But it could be, and are we ready for that answer? That's what I'm asking. Because that's the answer that Habakkuk got. See, God says, wonder and be amazed because this is the kind of God I am. I am the God 
I am the God who is who is sovereign, king over all. And what that means is that my sovereignty, my kingship, it extends even to the utilization of wicked kings and wicked nations to bring about my purposes in the world. And so are you ready to be amazed by God's answer to your prayers, by, by him giving you more than you asked or, or thought? Or maybe by undermining the very thing that you wanted and thought you needed most? Are you ready to submit to God's way of establishing righteousness in the world when it's not the way you would have ever expected? It's a risky prayer. Why can we... Why can we pray this way? Why would you pray this way? Well, here's why. Do you know the first person to ask how long in the Bible? Exodus 16, 28, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Numbers 14, 11, The second time how long is asked in the Bible. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? How long? God sees and God laments. God is with us. He sees the injustice and he cries out how long as well. In his lament, it is a love song. He hurts for the broken world. And he asked how long, and he is with us in it. He's with us in the crying, so much so that he took on flesh. And he came down, and he dwelt among us in this world of sin and misery. <laughs> and then, suffering with us, he cried out. And the greatest lament we have in the Bible, why? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you see, that's the answer. That's the answer to our how long. That's the answer to our why. How long? Until everyone that I have given to the Son comes to me. Until you and I are saved. Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all might come into eternal life. And why? Because, as Peter says in Acts chapter 2, that Jesus was handed over to the, to the authorities by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, Peter says, put him to death, nailing him on the cross. But God raised him to the dead, from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. See, when Jesus cries out why, the crucifixion itself is the answer because this is God's plan. This is God's righteousness. This is how he makes the world right. And when we ask how long, it's so that we do not perish and none from the Son has been sent to save. And so that's our answer. You see, this lament, it is a love song. And this answer means that one day, someday, 
there will be a time when love songs are no longer laments.